Well, hello. Welcome to Bible study. Good to see everybody tonight. Glad you're here. I'm excited to be here. You're excited to be here. We're excited together. Yeah. So let's pray and begin our time. Father, thanks for uh, your love, and we thank you, God, for your joy. We thank you that you have poured out your love extravagantly on us, uh, your mercy, your grace, uh, your patience, your long-suffering, and we are the recipients of all that you have in your heart, and we thank you for that. We thank you for uh, loving us. We thank you for caring for us. We thank you for providing for us. We thank you, God, that your hand is on our lives. I pray tonight that we would recognize more and more of who you are, more and more of what you do in our lives. I ask you, God, tonight that we would be more mindful of all of the love and the grace and the mercy that you have poured out and you continue to pour out every single day. So, God, I just ask that uh, we would respond to you tonight. Pray that you would have your way. Give us ears to hear. I pray you would challenge us. And I pray you would draw us closer to you for asking in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to look into the book of Exodus. Going to go back to Exodus tonight, Exodus 34. And uh, so if you need a Bible, you can grab one off the table. There's see some there, some there. There's some over there. Uh, you may have an electronic version. That'd be great. Whatever you have, whatever you're using, uh, that, that's good. But have some available so you can read with us. Also, I'd take this opportunity. Uh, to remind you that we have an interactive feature with our Bible study, and it's through a website at www.speakpipe.com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. And you can go there, and there's a button to toggle, and you can leave us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, could be a question, comment. could be uh, just something good that God's done in your life. It could be just saying hi. Uh, we'd love to hear from you and to hear from, from where you're from and uh, encourage you to take advantage of that feature. Exodus 34 and verse 20. Exodus 34, 20. When someone gets there, you can read it. All right, uh, kind of a weird verse. Uh, yeah, I understand. I get that part of it. But what you're looking at here, what you're looking at here are some commands and instructions that God is giving the people of Israel. They have traveled, and they are beginning to coalesce, and they're beginning to form themselves into not just a, an ethnic group of people that have traveled into the wilderness, have escaped slavery, and are now on their way to a promised land. They're more than that. They're a group of worshipers. They're a group that are identified by their faith in their God. And so that becomes something a little bit more of an identity. It's more than just, oh, you know, my daddy's related to your uncle or whatever it is, all right? They, they're becoming more than that. And they're becoming something greater than just a family of people. 
but they're becoming a family of God. And so because of that, there were certain things that needed to be done. There were certain ideas that they needed to have some kind of a grasp on, some kind of an understanding of. And so one of the ways that God did that was by establishing an order over the people. And by that I mean this, that there was a certain way of seeing things, a certain way of understanding things, and a certain way of doing things. And the hope for that would be that the law would provide a means by which they would be able to understand God better and they would be able to serve him better because that's what he wanted. That's why he wanted to be closer to them. And because he wanted to be closer to them, he created a means by which they could actually draw near and they could actually understand him better and they could actually come into a closer place with him. Now, I know that's kind of hard for you to understand. Uh, it's hard for us to understand. But there is a certain advantage to order. There is a particular advantage to order, which helps us begin to think differently and helps us to begin to understand things differently. And so whether or not that's been lost uh, over time in our society, I have no idea. Uh, I do know that there was a time when certain things were done in order and certain order was placed upon children when they went to school. I haven't been in school in a long time. But we all understood certain societal norms by the order that was placed on us as children, small children, in the school system. So, in other words, there were certain things that you could do, certain things you couldn't do, certain things that were acceptable, certain things that are not acceptable, certain things that we expect out of people, certain things we expect people not to do. And those type things were taught through the school. So, in other words, the teacher would get together with his, their stu his or her students at the beginning of the year, and he would say, okay, well, these are the class rules. And given the class rules, and through those rules and through the keeping of those rules, they were given the opportunity to actually begin to think differently, begin to act differently, and they actually began to, to, to change the way that they would interact and react to one another the way they reacted to the school, the personnel, the adults that were in the school. All of those things were expected to come around and expected to change over time. You follow me? Some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy. All right. So, like I said, I haven't been in school a long time. That was my experience. And so I had a general understanding. So when I got out of school, I had a general understanding about how you treat other people. It wasn't really a religious understanding. It wasn't a moralistic understanding necessarily, but I had been conditioned through years and years and years within this school program and this being there that these are the societal norms and this is what's expected of me. And maybe there's some moral component to it, but I wasn't taught it as a moral. I was taught it as this is how we are and this is how we interact with one another. So like, give, I'll give you an example. All right, if the teacher asked a question, now I'm talking old days because I'm old. If the teacher asked a question I wanted to answer, what was the expectation that I needed to do? I'd raise my hand. If the teacher wanted me to answer the question, if they desired me to answer the question, what would they do? They'd call on me, right? And, I, and then I would answer the question. If they wanted someone else to answer the question, then they would call on the other person, right? And just because I had my hand up did not mean that I would be called on. 
And I learned to live with that <laughs> early on. That just because I was offering my opinion, just because I wanted some kind of input into the conversation, it did not mean I had the right to give my input or to offer it. I mean, I could offer it, but not to force it on anyone. The teacher regulated that. And so I learned that. That was a pretty good lesson. Like later on in life, I, that was a good lesson, like in regular conversation. Like maybe I don't raise my hand, but I've been in plenty of conversations since I got out of school where it could be a work, it could be ministry, it could be a lot of different places where I'm just sitting there. This just happened on Friday night. I was at a work meeting, and I was just sitting at the table, and they were all discussing the, the thing that they were discussing, whatever they were talking about. And there came a point where, I, and I didn't feel the need to share anything. They were doing a great job. But there came a point in the midst of the conversation where somebody said to me, hey, Andy, what do you think? All right, so that was my prompt, right? So I did have a couple thoughts, so I shared my thoughts, which they laughed at and thought it was really kind of funny. And I said, okay, well, thank you. And that was it, and I didn't offer any more thoughts. But I wasn't hurt by that. I didn't feel the need to force myself into a conversation. I didn't feel the need to have to, to, to share my thoughts, to feel validated or to feel important or to feel like I belonged in there. I didn't feel any need like that whatsoever. And part of the reason for that, and I'm not saying the whole reason, part of the reason for that is I was well conditioned for 13 years not to worry about it. Right? Even if I knew the answer, I didn't have to share it. I didn't. Right? And if somebody else got called on, they had the wrong answer. I didn't stand up and, well, I know the answer. I didn't say anything. Don't care. I, I could raise my hand again and maybe I get called on. I know the answer. Didn't call on me. Okay, I can live with that. Carry on. All right. There's other things that we were conditioned toward. Well, I'm using this as an example. And I'm not trying to extol the, the benefits of legalism. That's not what I'm doing. But what I am trying to say is that as human beings, especially as children, we require a certain amount of training. And we require a certain amount of conditioning. It was not imprinted in your DNA to be polite. It was not imprinted in your DNA to be respectful of other people. It was not imprinted in your DNA to wait your turn. It was not imprinted in your DNA to know how to form a line. Okay, none of that was imprinted into your DNA. We're not wolves. We don't live with the imprint in our DNA that tells us everything we need to do just about. We have to raise our children. We have to train our children. We have to condition our children somehow so that they know how to be. And to expect them to just come out and at the age of three years old to say, well, what do you want to do? I don't care what a three-year-old wants to do. It doesn't matter. They don't know what to do. Unless you're talking about pooing or eating or, or saying no, okay? I, I mean, whatever. They don't know what to do. And so I, my, that question's meaningless to me. Like, here's what we're doing. And we do it. And that was true for three-year-olds. That was true for 
four-year-olds. That was true for five-year-olds. All right, but as, as children begin to get older, they can take a little more responsibility. And if you do ask them a question, awesome. And what if they say the wrong thing? Correct them. Correct them. And then allow them to grow and mature and become. All right, that's how we, that, that was, I'll just say it, it was, it's, at one time, that's the way we raised our children. Now, as adults, people of faith, I want you to see that process going on with Israel here in Exodus. That Moses has given them some commands. And some of these commands, you look at them, you're like, well, what does that have to do with anything? Like this command. He's telling them, like, what you have to do. Now, he's, he's going down and he's talking to them about the firstborn. And the firstborn of anything. Because God had declared, God had declared that the firstborn was his. That was his declaration. And he told all of Israel that. You're firstborn. Firstborn what? Firstborn anything. Your firstborn is mine, is what God said. So your firstborn child, your firstborn animal, your firstborn whatever it would be, that, that belongs to God. And so what he was describing here was the process by which the children of Israel could buy back their firstborn. Now what do I mean by buy back? What I mean is, is that if they chose to keep their firstborn. So in other words, what do I mean? Samuel. This would happen later. But think about Samuel and Hannah, his mom. His mom took Samuel to the temple. And she gave Samuel to the temple. In other words, she didn't buy him back. But at the Lord's prompting, she gave him to the temple because he was the Lord's. That's by law. That's by principle. Why do you think that? Why do you think God said, I want the firstborn? What's he saying by that? What is that? What, what does that form? What does that, 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 that set up, okay? That, that structure, what does it say to you? I want your firstborn. What does that say to the children of Israel? What does it say to you? Yeah. You can answer me. Says something. Okay, that's that. Good, good point. Do you know if you're going to have more? No. What if you don't? But you're giving away the most valuable thing you have. I, I know. I know how I felt when my son was born. He's my firstborn. Going to give him away. Yeah, that's what God was teaching them. Yeah, that's what you're going to do. You get a couple of sheep, and they mate. You know, one of them finally, the female finally gets pregnant and has a lamb. So you're well on your way to your big flocks and herds, except for one thing. What? That lamb belongs to God. That child belongs to God. And in the case of this verse, that donkey belongs to God. Or the, that ox, or whatever it is. 
just, you know, that goat, whatever, it belongs to God. And that's the, the structure, that's the, the form that he presented to the children of Israel. It's like, why? You know, you look at that, and he's raising them up for a reason, and he's training them for a reason, and he's teaching them this for a reason. He has his reasons. So that after 40 years of being trained in that, I have my 13 in school, right? After 40 years of being trained into that, or growing up in that system, you become accustomed to the fact, just like I need to raise my hand to ask a question, you become accustomed to the fact that everything that is produced in my household, everything that is brought about in my household, the first of it is always God's. He gets first pick. Not second, not third, not fourth, not fifth. None of the rest of them. He gets the first one. So start applying that. Start applying that to everything you complain about, with, about God. Start, about, start applying that to, to money. Start applying that to time. Start applying that to effort. Start applying that to people. You start applying some of those things. Start applying that to uh, that, that guy or girl that you can't do without. Begin to apply that. And all of a sudden, uh, you start looking at the New Testament and the Bible talks about Jesus is preeminent over all creation. Well, yeah. And people want to define that as first. Well, he's not even just first. He's over everything. Because what happened in the, in, in the New Testament is that it went from just the firstborn being God's. Guess what? Everything is God's. Everything. And so we were being trained. God's people were being trained. I mean, we have enough trouble with the firstborn. We have enough trouble with the first thing. Much less the, the concept, the idea that everything could be his. Everything is his. Got a real problem with that. And so we got this rule. All right, go back to what we're looking at. He says, so how do you buy back the donkey? He gives you an option to buy back the donkey. What's the option? Right, with what? With a lamb. Right. So, so you have to take something as valuable, or, or whatever God deems as valuable as a donkey, and buy back your donkey, your firstborn donkey, with a lamb. And he gives that option with different things that would be in your household. In other words, your firstborn son, your firstborn daughter, whatever it is, the firstborn son that's born into your house, you have an option to buy that son back, but it's going to cost you something. And so you buy that son back, and you, know, and you see exceptions to that, like Hannah. And uh, Go ahead. Well, I think it's apparent, and you can, we could argue this, but I think it's apparent that the priests and God weren't so interested in the donkey. <laughs> and so they're going to take a lamb for the donkey. Yeah, yeah. And so, and, and the same thing with the human. You can't really say it's more valuable, but he's going to take the human because they needed workers. They needed people to serve in the temple, right? But beyond that, 
if you did want to buy back your firstborn son, then you would pay whatever he required to pay for it, which he would consider of equal value. Now, would we consider it of equal value? No, of course not, but he does. And so you're going off of his system and what he's looking for. It's still going to cost you something. It's still going to cost you something. So why is this important? This is important because we're living in a time where people expect everything to be given to them. We just are. All right? And you expect God to just give you, give me, give me, give me, or the government, or this person, or your employer, or whoever it is. They're just going to give you something. No, they're not going to give you something. No generation has had the expectation that somebody's just going to give them something. You know, there's those old sayings. You ever hear these old sayings? No such thing as what? Yeah, why is that a saying? Because people understood that there's a catch. All right? Somewhere. And they didn't have any expectation that, oh, this isn't going to cost me anything. It is going to cost you something. It is going to cost you something. And I, there's other sayings I'm not going to go into right this second. <laughs> but nobody rides for free. That's right. <laughs> I bet. I bet. So... Here we are. So what, why is this important? It's important because we need to understand that life, things, relationships, love, it's, it costs us something. And it may not be, you know, money. And it may not be a lamb for a donkey anymore. But it does cost us something something of value to us. As you go through this passage, there are two themes in this passage. You go above it and you can see it. The first theme has to do with, and it all has to do with worship, and the first theme is, is just worship God. Worship God only. And, and it was a direct, a direct command against idolatry. And there's a phrase used in the, in the King James that you probably might laugh at. But the people of Israel were instructed to not go a whoring. <laughs> and it was in a spiritual sense. It wasn't, you know, they, they were just, it was in a spiritual sense. I'm talking about idolatry. And, and the more important part of that was this, that Israel and God were pictured in a covenant relationship. They were relational. They were in each other's lives. They were tied together. They were connected. And because they were connected by a real connection, because they were tied to one another by a real tie, I mean, it was something real that was going on there. Because of that, they, they used this expressive idea of prostitution to represent being led away from God. Going after whatever it is that they went after. And so the first part of this was that just worship God. 
be faithful. Don't stray off. Don't go running after something else. But recognize that you're in a relationship with your God and be faithful to him. That's, that's the first thing that he was saying. And the, the beginnings of what's being talked about here. And then the second part of it, the second theme that you see here is this idea of empty hands. Because Moses gave this, he said this, he says, don't come to worship God at the end of this verse here. Don't come to worship God with empty hands. And I know we have a song that says that, but set that aside for just a second. Because if you read the end of verse 20 in Exodus 34, it literally says that. Moses gave them a command not to worship God with empty hands. What do you mean by that? Well, you see an example of that. Can anybody, well, can anybody think of an example? I'm going to go to one, so. Right. Look at uh, 2 Samuel 24. Give an example of David. Now, this is a lot of years later. This is a lot of years after Moses says this. Now, I fully believe that David knew that Moses said this. I do believe that. I believe that David studied what he considered the scriptures, what were the scriptures at that time. I believe that he studied the, the, five books of the first five books of the Bible. I believe that he knew what Moses had said. I believe that this is something that was just a part of him, a part of his life. And so he knew this verse in Exodus 34, 20, where it is commanded, don't come to worship God with empty hands. So go to 2 Samuel chapter 24 in verse 24. And somebody read that when you get to it. But the king replied to Arana, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings at the cost of nothing. So David bought his threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. All right, and then he goes on that he built an altar, he presented burnt and peace offerings. And the Lord answered his prayers for the land, and the pestilence on Israel was averted. Now, the story behind this is that David had went to Arona, and he had said, I, I want to buy your threshing floor because I want to set up an altar to the Lord so that we can get rid of the pestilence over the land. And Arona's like, no, I'll give it to you. You can have it. He's like, no, no, I insist on buying it. And he's like, no, I, um, you can have it. I, I'll give it to you. You're the king. It's for the good of the nation, and I'm more than happy to give you this threshing floor. And so as they went back and forth, this was David's final answer. Verse 24, no, with an exclamation point, mine has. It says, the king replied, I will buy them from you at full price. I won't offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Now, do you see a parallel with Exodus 34:20? Yeah. So David had an understanding. David was a man after God's own heart. David had been schooled in the order of how things go. 
He had put in his years in the scriptures to be trained up so that he knew that he was supposed to raise his hand before he asked a question. All right? In this sense. And in the spiritual sense, he was raised and understood within the structure of what he understood from the Old Testament. He was raised that he understood that he's not going to try to offer God something that didn't cost him anything. He got it. So I'm going to come before God and worship. I'm going to come before God with something of value. And so the real question then becomes, well, what does God value? All right, that's what it becomes. Because we were talking about, they're kind of in the exchange program, the lamb for the donkey. Like, I don't know, you know, why God would value the lamb as much as a donkey. A donkey can do a lot more work. You can ride a donkey. A donkey can pull a plow. A donkey can do a lot of things. What do lambs do? They do taste better. (laughs) They do taste better. Right? I don't think it works that way. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I can't answer the value system. All right. I don't think there's any rhyme or reason to it. Uh, and if there is, it's beyond me. But God has his value system. And so we need to have ourselves plugged into that value system. But before we plug ourselves into the value system, we need a reason for it. We, need, we actually need a reason for it. In other words, for me to sit here and tell you, okay, well, this, we need to do A, B, and C, but you don't really know why you're doing it, who cares? Who cares? That's the very nature of that, that, that idea of, of being legalistic. Well, do A, B, and C, and all will be good. No, that's not really the answer. Legalism isn't the issue here. Being trained up and having an order over our lives and having a structure over our lives that leads us into a life of truth with God, that's what I'm talking about. But once that's established, then you begin to ask, well, how do I fill this? All right. You're in a good spot to do it. You're in a good spot to do that. Yeah. So we, we do that. When I worked for the Department of Labor, and this was right after I got out of college, I, uh, I was a disciplinarian. And at the center that I worked at, there were two components. There was a trade component where the students would spend X number of days in the trade. They learned carpentry or plumbing or auto mechanics or uh, some kind of nursing assistant or whatever it was that they were learning their trade from. But then on the other days, they would go to a school. And it was like a regular classroom school, and they would sit there and they would be taught and so they could prepare for a GED. And so those were the two components of the training program that were the academic side of it. There was the GED side, which was a regular classroom setting. Like it was, an, it was actually an old elementary school that had been bought by the Department of Labor, and the students were bused to the elementary school, and they had their individual classrooms. There was a principal in the building. It was, it was run like an elementary school. The issue was these were 16 to 22-year-olds, but it was, it was a classroom setting. The other side of it was more, we're in the shop, we're learning how to do this, and it was more hands-on. So 
the shop part of it, the trade part of it, really wasn't the issue. Most of the kids that were there, that's why they went into the program. They wanted to learn how to be a carpenter, or they wanted to learn how to be a plumber, or they wanted to learn how to work on cars, whatever it was. And so they were interested in that. The, the component that was the most difficult was the classroom side of it. Because these kids had been kicked out of school already. Some of them had been in jail. Some of them had been kicked out of the military. And here they were. And so they, they were put into a classroom situation and had trouble with it. So when I first took over as disciplinarian, there were all kinds of discipline problems at the school. That was the main issue. Well, discipline problems at school, discipline problems in the dorms. So those are the two focuses in order to fix things. So one of the things that we noticed right away is that as the discipline issues in the school began to get fixed, what do I mean by that? I mean kids not just talking whenever they feel like it, kids being willing to raise their hands, be called on, not having a fit if they're not called on, kids sitting quietly, turning in their work when they're supposed to, and doing their assignments. Well, Andy, that's impossible. Nope. It's not impossible. Even with the delinquents we had, somehow we're able to do it. And one thing we noticed was once that happened, or even just started happening, and that became more and more the norm in those classrooms, guess what happened? Guess what happened with GED pass rates? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that doesn't have anything to do with that. You're just being mean. Nope. It was directly correlated with it. Directly. And so when we begin to think about our spiritual life, I'm a big believer. I'm a big believer. And, and if you've known me long enough, you know this is the case. I'm a big believer in order. I'm a big believer in discipline. I'm a big believer. In, and by discipline, I don't mean being a jerk or, or yelling all the time or anything like that. I just really believe that certain things are done in a certain order, and that's the way it is. And if we can put ourselves into God's order for our lives, the spiritual components of our life are going to go we're open to that if we're open to that and so I spent a lot of time trying to establish or trying to create a an order a framework where people can succeed in their spiritual life I put a lot of effort in that over the years whether it's in a service, whether it's in a kinship, whether it's in a prayer meeting, wherever it is, is creating an order for which people can flourish in if they choose to. If they choose to. I can't make you flourish. I can't make anything flourish. I can plant a garden, and I can weed it, and I can water it, and I, I can do a lot of stuff with it, but I can't make it flourish. I can't even make it grow. Stuff grows all by itself. I, I, don't, I don't make it grow. But I, I can create a condition by which it can grow. 
So I want you to consider that for your life. I really do. I want you to think about that for your life. I want you to think about the idea of what those conditions would be. I'll give you an example of something I'm talking about. How about once a week in, in the Old Testament, God told his people to rest. He called it the Sabbath. And he said, I want you to rest one day a week. And so not only, it, it wasn't even in the law, that, that was from the beginning. In other words, how do you know that? Well, when he created the heavens and the earth, he, he, he spent six days working, then what did he do? He rested. So he, he gave us the example from the very beginning. And here's something you need to learn from that example. You ready? You ready? You can say all you want. Well, I really don't need to rest. Well, neither did he. <laughs> right? God doesn't need to rest. He was like tired. He rested because he was setting an example. He was setting a framework. He was setting an order for our lives. That was before the law. And as far as I'm concerned, that's still rolling along to this day. If the trees are still budding and they're still producing flowers and the fruit's still coming on them and there's leaves on them and they fall off in the fall but they come back again in the spring, as long as that word is continuing to circulate in all of creation, I believe that the day of rest is circulating all of creation too. I just do. And so rare is a time that, and I know I work on Sunday because I'm here, but rare is a time I'm going to work outside of here. And I will every now and then, but rare is that time because I take seriously what God has said. But you know what? I was brought up in that as a little kid. And so I valued it even though I didn't even believe it. I didn't know why. I couldn't even answer that question. All I knew is that this is what we did every single Sunday. The big discussion in our house is, should we eat out because we're forcing people in restaurants to work? No. <laughs> Grandma, get to work. Make some food. <laughs> or whatever. You know, we, we didn't really eat leftovers like that. But, but it just... All I can say is, even with all of his inconsistencies, it was something that was put into me at an early age. It was, if you, if you teach a child the way he should go, he will not depart from it. He just won't. So, so anyway, that was the framework. That was, the, that was how it was done. And so I learned that. Even though I didn't even understand it, I didn't know why, I couldn't have answered those questions, but it sticks with me even to this day because I know why now I understand why I know what I believe now and it still sticks with me because that's just something he said and here's the thing he was telling them to take a day off even when it was time to plant and even when it was time to harvest they still you take your day off that's what he told them you take your day of rest anytime Good times, bad times, busy times, slack times, whatever. Take your day off. And here's what I do know. And I'll tell you this. If you put yourself into God's order, if you will, if you're willing to do that, you will prosper the better. You will. 
And again, that's not a legalistic statement. I'm not saying it's a magic formula. Do this, this, and this, and then you'll get that. It's not three steps. It's not four steps. It's not five steps. It's not any of those things. It's just finding God's order. It, it, it's revealed throughout the, the Old Testament. In the New Testament, God's order is revealed through those things. And it's finding that order and, and, and taking hold of that order for our lives. And being willing to live in it. And if we're willing to do that, I believe we'll prosper all the better. And by prosper, I don't necessarily mean we're going to get rich. If that's part of it, awesome. That never worked for me. But prospering spiritually, prospering relationally, that's powerful. Prospering even emotionally, there's something really, really powerful about that. Those are things that the whole world seeks after and they can't find. Those are things that the whole world wants, but they, they somehow can't get their hands on it. And they will believe any crap that, that says that it will help them with those things. They'll believe anything, even if it doesn't make any sense. Now, if you ever watch any of the South Parks that talk about religions, like the weird religions, if you've ever seen those, you know, and they'll say something outlandish about the religion, and then they'll flash on the bottom of the screen, people really believe this? They really believe this? Like, seriously? Yeah. Yeah, they will grab hold of anything that seems to somehow tell them how to do this. But, yeah. What do you mean? I mean, we'll leave it in Scientology, you know, the alien, whatever. The, I mean, but it puts them first. Right. Them in the driver's seat somehow. Right. Right. And so, back to where we started here, this is going to cost you something. This always costs you something. And that's kind of the point we're getting at, is that we're, we're rolling along. And we have to find this spot, this order. And what do I mean by order? Is that being with God, being with him, being with him is our duty to him. In other words, it comes before business. It comes before money. It comes before anything. Right. That's what you lay down before God, and then you wait and see what He has. Right. Right. And and from the perspective we're looking at tonight, the idea is, what's it going to cost you? It costs you all those things. Because what what if it doesn't work out? It wasn't. It could be a companion. It could be a job opportunity. It could be money. It could be a position. It could be whatever. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. And what you're talking about is this idea that it has just invaded everything. 
and it's so primitive and weird to the gospel that I don't think Christians even expected it, but it's invaded everywhere. I'm going to get mine. And that's it. Because no one else is going to take care of me. Well, good luck with that. Because in the long run, we got more people on meds. We have more people with mental illness. We have people killing themselves. And these are people that have money and have all kinds of things that years ago people didn't have at all. But they don't have some basic things that we as human beings need. And that's going to be found as we find ourselves back into the order and the structure that God has for us. The way of duty, nobody wants to hear this. Nobody wants to hear this. The way of duty is the way of success in the kingdom. The way of duty is the way of success in the kingdom. Nobody wants to hear that. So I'm just going to say it. There it was. Said it. And by, and you know, you think about success in the kingdom, what's the definition? Well, that's success in the kingdom, that's spiritual prosperity. What does that look like? I, I don't always even understand that. I, I mean, were the apostles spiritually prosperous? Yeah. They went out and changed the world. Sure. But they all died kind of cruel deaths, all of them, whether they were martyred or died in prison, whatever. And, and most of the world would look at that and say, well, was that really, really prospering? Yeah. Right. Right. They overcame him. You're quoting half a verse there. Yep. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimonies, and they loved not their lives even to the death. Yep. That was a good part. I, I, I wasn't ridiculing it. I was just saying. Yeah. All right. If you venture for God, he can never lose. And so I don't know how to convince you about any of this. I, I really don't know how to convince you that... Uh, what I'm saying makes any sense because in some ways it doesn't. And if you weren't raised in this model and you weren't raised in this pattern and you weren't raised in this framework and you weren't raised in these values, it is foreign. And I know some of you weren't. And, it, and it's foreign and you chafe against it because you want to take care of yourself and do what you want to do. And so you chafe against the framework and you chafe against the, the order that God wants to put into your life. And I feel badly for you because you're fighting against yourself. You're fighting your own success in the kingdom. You're fighting your own prosperity in the kingdom. You're fighting 
against God's best for your life. And I feel badly for you. And you can say you don't want my pity, but you got it. You do. And so, I guess uh, what, I would, what I would encourage you toward is something better. To make a different decision. To begin to learn what it is to live within the framework of what God has. To begin to learn what it means to live in the order of God in your life. To begin to learn what it means to, to sacrifice the first and the best. To begin to learn what it means to, to rework your plans for his. To begin to learn what it means to actually trust him with anything that matters for you. Relationships, jobs, money, whatever. To actually begin to trust him for that. And live in it. To find peace in it. To find rest and joy. That's what I encourage you toward. That's what I'm, I'm looking to see happen through this. It is to see some of those decisions made. So let's uh, take a few moments and respond. I encourage you right where you're at. Whatever's going on. Whatever's happening. You're... Your space, your spot right now. I, I want to encourage you to, to do something tonight. To make a positive step. To make a positive decision. Maybe just ask God for his order. Ask God for the, his way of doing things. Begin to take seriously things that you know. That, that he's revealed. Because it's all through stuff you've been taught. It's all through the stuff that, that you know. Setting an order, setting a structure, and allow him to teach you what that means. Even if it's just the things I said tonight, maybe starting there, God wants the first and the best. You're going to worship, you're going to come with worship, it's going to cost you something, it's going to cost you time, it's going to cost you effort, it's going to cost you reputation, it's going to cost you your pride. If you really want to worship God, it's going to cost you some pride, all right? It's going to cost you. Just be willing to pay. Maybe taking a day and resting. Maybe that's simple. Simple. But a good start. And again, uh, I, I'm not saying that I'm going to do X, Y, and Z and I'm going to get A, B, and C. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying just taking our lives and bringing it into line with what God has. Whatever that is. It's revealed. He shows us. He, he lays it out for us. Most of the time it's fairly obvious. You may not want to do it, but it's fairly obvious. That's up to you. That is up to you. But your duty, your duty, is to be with God. That's your duty. And hopefully it becomes your preference.
Say what you need to say to him. Talk to him a little bit. Just take another moment or so. Thank you, Lord. Hmm. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thanks. Jesus. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I say thanks that uh, you have provided a covenant relationship that we can live in with you. Thank you that you choose to live with us in a relational fashion, that we are tied to you, we're connected to you. I pray, God, that we'd be a people that really would, in a practical way, prefer being with you in the order that you've established, and the structure that you've given. So God, I ask that we count the cost. And I would pray that we would just pay the price to give of our lives, to give our dreams to you, our hopes, our futures, our preferences, our desires, we give them to you. We trust you. We give you thanks tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks for coming, everybody. Good to see you. And uh, we will see you again soon.